Hello, welcome everybody to uh, the LSE and the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, today is another installment in our series called European Provocations, where we invite uh, a thinker in their uh, own prominent right to introduce a text to us that is of particular significance to their thinking, that is, inspires them in a particular way, that is, hence the title, European Provocations, particularly thought-provoking in some way or other. Um, and so today uh, we have with us Richard Bronk, who is a visiting fellow at the European Institute here at the LSE, and he will talk to us, as you can see, about Hayek, and he's particularly qualified to do so as he um, used to work in the city for 17 years, so his research and his thinking is informed both by his practical expertise in markets um, and finance, and also, of course, by uh, his research interests, his academic interests. He was um, educated in Oxford and um, is doing or has done research on the role of imagination, language, and metaphor in economics, the dangers of economic monoculture, and the epistemology of markets. He's currently uh, working on the relationship between creativity and uncertainty, and certainly given that these are very uncertain times, we should all be very creative, probably, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Um, and as you might know, he is the author of The Romantic Economist, Imagination and Economics, which was published in 2009 by Cambridge University Press. And so without much further ado, I will just hand over to Richard and look forward to his uh, thought-provoking introduction to Hayek's thinking. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christina. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thanks for braving the the, um, the thunder and the rain. Um, and you did better than poor old Francois Hollande, who, in his first day as president of France, had his plane struck by lightning and had to turn back to Paris on his way to see Merkel. So, so. <laughs> I'm glad it was slightly easier for you all. Now, the Austrian economist philosopher and polymath Friedrich von Hayek is well suited to the task of provoking a forum for European philosophy and an LSE audience. An Austrian by birth, training and intellectual persuasion, Hayek was a professor at the LSE from 1931 to 49 and took up British citizenship. In 1950 he moved to Chicago and soon became a cheerleader for, the, for American free market liberalism an inspiration to the new right in both the US and in Britain in the 1970s and 80s. In retirement, he returned to Europe, to Freiburg, and to his beloved Austria, dying in Freiburg in 1992. Hayek, of course, became fate, the most famous intellectual scourge of socialist planning. The Road to Freedom was his most famous... Sorry, The Road to Serfdom was his most famous book. <laughs> <laughs> and this was in part for some very subtle and original epistemological reasons. And, in his, and in, his, in his challenge to the possibility of rational constructivism or planning, Hayek was also highly critical of rationalist assumptions of modern economics. So without further ado, let me introduce you to our provoking text of the day, which focuses on what I call the wisdom of prices. The text is an article Hayek published in the American Economic Review in 1945, which built on an earlier famous article in 1937 on economics and knowledge. And let me read you just three short passages of, of it from, by way of introduction. The peculiar character of the problem of a rational economic order 
is determined by the fact that the knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge which all the separate individuals possess. To solve this problem of dispersed, contextual, constantly changing knowledge, Hayek argued that we must look at the price system as a mechanism for communicating information, as a kind of machinery for registering change, or a system of telecommunications. Hayek was in no doubt that free market is an unrivaled marvel in its function as a coordination mechanism for communicating and using decentralized and partial information. In his words, the marvel is that in a case like that of a scarcity of one raw material, without an order being issued, without more than a handful of people knowing the cause, tens of thousands of people whose identity could not be ascertained by months of investigation are made to use the material or its product sparingly. That is, they move in the right direction. Now, in my talk today, I want to examine, first of all, why Hayek's argument here proved to be so influential, and rightly so, and second, why it is nonetheless incomplete and, in important respects, misleading. I will argue that Hayek's restatement of the problem to be solved in economics as a problem of the division of knowledge and his emphasis on the wisdom of prices was so crucial because it succeeded in showing the impossibility of central planning and indeed the limits of rational direction of the economy by both Keynesians and monetarists. Government intervention, according to Hayek, almost always causes rather than solves disequilibrium and discoordination because no central planning bureau, central bank or treasury can ever know enough on the basis of summary statistics to direct an economy. Instead, such knowledge as is required can only emerge as the product of market interaction and reliance on free market prices. Now, this argument of Hayek's, as we shall see, also, was also complemented by a lucid critique of standard economics, with its rationalist micro-foundational assumptions of individuals optimising among given preferences on the basis of perfect knowledge of the options and constraints facing <coughs> Indeed, I shall, I shall argue that Hayek was in many ways the precursor of the modern complexity approach to economics, seeing economies not as a sequence of mechanical equilibria, but as a spontaneous order evolving without design. But however important Hayek's criticisms of central planning and of standard economics, and however much evidence there now is to support his insights, there is also much in his theory that needs reassessing. In particular, I will argue that Hayekians must face up to the shocking failure of market prices to lead to a wise assessment of what was going on in financial markets prior to 2007, and of the fact that free markets themselves seem to have been so destabilizing. I will argue that while Hayek's theory is still of use in diagnosing what has gone wrong, there are some serious gaps in it. Not least Hayek's inability to acknowledge the possibility that free market ideology and deregulation itself may destroy the very institutions that market participants use to access dispersed and contextual information, and that it may lead to a dangerous analytical monoculture that corrodes the pluralistic underpinnings of the wisdom of prices. But let us go back first 
to Hayek's influential text. What Hayek attempted here was nothing less than the restatement of the central problem for economists and economic agents alike. As Hayek puts it, the standard formulation of the business of economics, the calculation of how to achieve optimal efficiency or the optimal use of scarce resources in conditions of complete knowledge, is emphatically not the economic problem which society faces. Hayek's quarrel with standard economics was not based on thinking markets often very inefficient. On the contrary, he was a champion of free markets. But he thought that standard economics' characterization of the problems we face and the unrealistic assumptions of its models miss the essence of how benign coordination in markets emerges. They fail to explain the marvel that it is in conditions of uncertainty rather than perfect knowledge that markets can produce outcomes more benign and stable than can be achieved in other ways. To explain this marvel, Hayek argues that we need to restate the problem central to economics to one of how market participants can use, make use of knowledge that is initially highly dispersed, contextual, and constantly changing. As Bruce Caldwell puts it, the puzzle for economics becomes to explain how benign coordination in markets emerges given the very limited knowledge faced by economic agents. Indeed, in his earlier 1937 paper, Hayek argued that the division of knowledge is analogous to and quite as crucial as the division of labor that Adam Smith looked at. For Hayek, the division of knowledge was the central problem for economics as a social science. And the standard economic approach, with its assumption of perfect knowledge of given data, simply assumes away and ignores the key problem faced by economic agents and economists alike. And a little aside here. Central to his early, earlier 1937 paper is a brilliant dissection of the meaning of the word data. Data, he points out, means in Latin, things given. But the question is, and I quote, to whom the facts are supposed to be given. Hayek mercilessly exposes the facile nature of the expression in economics of given data which conflates three entirely different concepts. Objective, real facts, facts as known to economists, and facts as known in the subjective sense by the economic actors whose behavior economists are trying to explain. Economists, Hayek argues, simply ignore the problem of knowledge. In Hayek's own words, again, any approach such as that of mathematical economics with its simultaneous equations which in effect starts from the assumption that people's knowledge corresponds with the objective facts of the situation, systematically leaves out what it is our main task to explain. As I will show later, Hayek's approach is quite different. It is to explain how knowledge is in part an emergent phenomenon that belongs to market participants as a function of their participation in the market and not as ex-ante given data. So let us explore Hayek's analysis of the problem of knowledge. As John Gray notes, Hayek is a post-Kantian thinker who assumes that we can never have some unmediated access to reality. Rather, our knowledge is a function of individual perspective, selection, interpretation, even opinion. Indeed, social reality itself is in part at least constituted and constructed by the beliefs, mental frameworks, subjective valuations and preferences 
of different economic agents. Any attempt to abstract from subjective valuation and interpretation therefore misses something important to the decision-making of individuals. As I would put it, economists and economic agents have no choice but to interpret a pre-interpreted world. The subjectivity of human beliefs, though, is only one aspect of Hayek's formulation of the problem of knowledge. A second is the dispersion of crucial information across many different individuals. It is impossible in practice, as the Soviet Union learned to its cost, to aggregate through accurate statistics such dispersed information. Even insofar as it relates to simple products such as the required fittings of light bulbs or the required amount of toilet paper across an entire economy. Moreover, it is impossible even in theory to centralise and integrate much of the dispersed information central to an economy where it relates to tacit and contextual knowledge. That is practical and unorganised knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place. Such knowledge of particular production techniques or practical skills, for example, is often impossible to codify or even articulate precisely, especially to those unfamiliar with the local context or experience. The final problem of knowledge in economics highlighted by Hayek is that in many of the key parameters there is a state, constant state of flux, constant change, the markets are always prone to novelty. It is for these four reasons that Hayek is suspicious of abstract theory. As John Gray puts it, theory is for Hayek only the visible tip of the vast submerged fund of tacit knowledge, much of which is entirely beyond our powers of articulation. There is a limit to the possibility of theoretical knowledge in social sciences, and by extension to the possibility of using such theory to control our destiny. Moreover, in two key respects, I would argue that Hayek actually understates the problem of knowledge in economics. His language of subjectivity and error still suggests that full objective knowledge is at least a meaningful concept. But I would argue that the problem is not one so much of subjective distortion as that it is impossible to capture or articulate all the important facets of reality in any one perspective or theoretical language. As Iris Murdoch wrote in her famous description of Sartre's philosophy, what does exist is brute and nameless. It escapes from the scheme of relations in which we imagine it to be rigidly enclosed. It escapes from language and science. It is more than and other than our descriptions of it. Furthermore, as George Shackle argued, our ability to imagine new futures and choose between newly imagined futures implies a radical ontological limit to knowledge about the future that no amount of computer modelling or local knowledge can overcome. In Shackle's words, novelty is the transformation of existing knowledge, its reinterpretation, in some degree necessarily its denial and refutation. And again, what does not yet exist cannot now be known. Now the upshot of these limits to knowledge was for Hayek the impossibility of central planning. Constant change and the dispersed and subjective nature of economic knowledge entail enormous problems for centralised economic calculation and planning. And statistics compiled by central authorities 
must abstract from essential contextual, practical and qualitative distinctions. The tacit knowledge embodied in practical skills, for example, cannot be codified and aggregated in central statistics. As Hayek puts it, the sort of knowledge, knowledge with which I am concerned is knowledge of the kind which by its very nature cannot enter into statistics and therefore cannot be conveyed to any central authority in statistical form. The statistics which such a central authority would have to use would have to be arrived at precisely by abstracting from minor differences between things, by lumping together as resources of one kind items which differ as regards location, quality and other particulars in a way which may be very significant <coughs> for the specific decision. And I think that John Gray is right that Hayek's greatest achievement was in this way to demonstrate the epistemic impossibilities of successful economic planning and therefore to explain the failure of socialism. Few doubt now that Hayek was articulating a very important truth about why planned economies have repeatedly failed to find solutions to consumer and corporate needs without the help of a functioning price mechanism. I notice that Hayek was also critical of Keynesianism and indeed Friedmanite monetarism for assuming a much greater knowledge of economic relationships in the aggregate than it is possible to attain. Take, for example, the manifest failures of monetarist authorities in the 1980s and beyond to agree on a stable and workable definition of money, let alone then to measure and target a particular volume of it and measure precisely its relationship to output. Nor does it follow that it is better to try and fail than not to try at all. <coughs> For the hubris of central bankers is such that they often intervene heavily on the basis of some contentious model-based knowledge. And more often than not, as Hayek would have predicted, their interventions cause rather than solve market instability. But if central planning bureaus and central banks cannot solve the problem of knowledge, how, according to Hayek, does the free market solve it? Well, for Hayek, market competition is a discovery process of constant adaptation to change. It's a catalaxy, a spontaneous order of individuals interacting with each other on the basis of both their own local knowledge and shared summary information gleaned from market prices. Hayek's argument was that signals given by market prices communicate summary information based on the innumerable decisions of individuals and so reflect key attributes of the dispersed and contextualized knowledge and subjective valuations frequently available only to those individuals. In this way, the price system in a competitive market is a mechanism for communicating sufficient initially dispersed information to allow for market coordination without human design, deliberate human design. Knowledge of a summary kind is an emergent phenomenon from the continuous process of market interaction. Only in the market, he argued, can there emerge a generalized and shared wisdom based ultimately on the tacit and local knowledge and subjective valuations of all participants, knowledge that could not be aggregated and codified in explicit terms. And for Hayek, the most significant fact about this system is the economy of knowledge with which it operates, or how little the individual participants need to know in order to take the right action. Only the essential information about relative supply and demand is conveyed by prices. 
In this way, decentralized decision makers with access to local tacit information can use summary information emerging from the price system to coordinate their actions with others. Actions which will then in turn have their impact on prices and the actions of others in a constant process of interaction and adaptation. This is the wisdom of prices and the marvel of market coordination. It is Hayek's second great insight that the market and the price mechanism can operate as a discovery process. And of course the magic of the market is even greater than this. As Buchanan and Van Berg, following Shackle, have put it, the market is also a creative process, constantly producing innovative products and novel preferences and methods. And this function too cannot be replicated successfully by centrally planned economies. Now given Hayek's clarion call for us to acknowledge the wisdom of prices and the virtue of market coordination, you might expect Hayek to be a hero of modern neoclassical economics. But in fact, Hayek is a distinctly uncomfortable figure for standard econ economists. The mutual adjustment process and spontaneous order that Hayek envisages is a far cry from rational choice and constrained optimization envisaged by standard economics. Hayek was always scathing about the assumption that markets can reach some determinate and optimal equilibrium, and equally scathing about the supporting assumptions that economic agents are either omniscient or fully rational in the sense of operating according to some axiomatic pure logic of choice. Hayek would have been impatient with the efficient markets hypothesis and would have been equally critical of the rational expectations hypothesis, in which the representative agent is assumed to have internalized the correct theory. There can be no representative agent in the Hayekian world of radically decentralized information, perspectives and subjective valuations and there can be no theory that can encapsulate the importance of tacit and contextual knowledge on which market participants can converge. For these reasons, Hayek largely abandoned formal economics and developed radical theories that prefigured some very modern ideas. For example, in Hayek's work, economic activity is seen not as a matter largely of conscious direction, but of unconscious habits and structuring rules. In this Hayek prefigured modern analysis that emphasizes how much of our behavior is a product of unconscious reactions rather than conscious rational calculation. Hayek also anticipated much of the contemporary trend for studying economics as complex self-organizing com economies, sorry, as complex self-organizing adaptive systems evolving without any top-down conscious design. In Hayek's system, outcomes emerge spontaneously from the partially rule-bound mutual interaction of heterogeneous agents. And modern scientists at Santa Fe and elsewhere model exactly this, with outcomes evol evolving, involving constant surprises alongside repeating patterns. And finally, Hayek well understood that when studying complex orders, we have to lower our standards of falsification as the basis of sound theory and give up the aim of precise prediction. Economists love mechanical optimization models with their unrealistic assumptions of rational expectations because these models promise to provide the spot predictions of future outcomes and amenable to precise testing that accord with their conception of a rigorous empirical science. But for Hayek, as for modern complexity economics, 
The holy grail of accurate prediction is a false goal for economists, as well as one, incidentally, that they continuously fail to achieve in practice. Expecting to make precise predictions in the area of economics is as foolish as expecting to predict the evolution of species over millennia. In economics, as in biology, we need instead to look for what Hayek calls the explanation of the principle of a system, and use models to tease out likely patterns and possible thresholds, the better to spot emerging patterns. I would argue that Hayek was making a crucial point here. Economics should not strive to be a Newtonian science capable of precise prediction, nor should it be embarrassed about any loss of scientific credentials if it relies on models that explain and simulate rather than predict precise outcomes. After all, the queen of modern natural sciences, biology, rarely attempts to predict the future with any precision, recognising the central importance of random mutations, threshold effects and positive feedback loops. Instead, biology focuses on causal explanations and the generation of models that help us spot emerging patterns and simulate the possible impacts of crossing certain thresholds. And economics, I would argue, should be no different. So much, then, for Hayek as a prophet of a new kind of economics, one that recognises the limits of knowledge and prediction and the importance of the market price mechanism in helping us navigate through uncertainty. But many of you, I suspect, are by now itching to remind me that the price mechanism has not operated in recent times as Hayek envisaged, to give all market participants useful signals of underlying decentralised information and the valuations of those privy to local context. Rather, in the lead-up to the recent financial crisis, market prices were profoundly misleading and their movements positively destabilising. So what has been going on? And does it nullify Hayek's great insight about the market as a discovery process? Does it suggest, after all, that rational calculators and planners inside and outside government know best? The period leading up to 2007 was one of rampant financial innovation, which by changing the equations of markets and revolutionising the types of product traded, disturbed previously systematic regularities in behaviour and greatly increased the uncertainty faced by all economic agents. The inventors of these new financial products knew more than others about their properties, but even they were largely unaware of the macro-level implications of their widespread use by other innovative and resourceful agents. So why were market prices not more helpful in helping us spot and understand what was going on? Why did market prices come to reflect valuations later perceived to be far away from underlying fundamentals? And how far should Hayek's theories be seen as deficient in helping us explain what happened? Well, my first answer centres on the observation that in conditions of uncertainty, market prices do not tend to reflect in summary form heterogeneous perspectives, narratives, emotions, dreams, and the local knowledge of a multiplicity of decentralised individuals, as Hayek envisaged. Instead, prices tend to reflect a shared new era narrative or a group emotional dynamic of confidence or panic. Hayek is right to assume that multiple decentralised perspectives and intuitions are better than a single perspective in helping us work out emerging patterns in the underlying economy. But all too often, market prices do not reflect 
decentralized knowledge and perspective, as Hayek assumed, but rather a homogenous narrative and a shared emotional state. Markets are not inhabited by lone rangers, but rather by social animals that prefer to share a dominant script, a collective image of the future. Faced with the potential agony of uncertainty, we like to share narratives, to be right or wrong with others, to banish uncertainty with a reassuring grand narrative that promises to solve and satisfy and set unchangeably in order. And this collective cognition, homogeneity of belief or convention, and tendency to group feel, as David Tuckett calls it, can threaten the smooth workings of markets by driving market prices so far in one direction that they fail to reflect ignored elements of emerging fundamentals. <coughs> the lead-up to the financial crisis provides a beautiful example of this. Markets became prey to an analytical monoculture, an almost universal belief in the efficient markets hypothesis, and prey at the same time to the grand <coughs> narrative of risk management, to use Michael Power's phrase. And this analytical monoculture and associated narrative had two devastating effects. First, they created shared analytical blind spots as market participants relied on just one inevitably limited way of spotting and analysing what was happening. And secondly, they created dangerously high correlations in behaviour as everyone's beliefs and actions became structured in the same way. One of the many factors left out of banks' risk models in the run-up to the crisis was the destabilizing rise in correlations caused by the rapid internalization of those same return on equity strategies, the same accounting conventions, and the same risk models across so many markets, all in the name of best practice and regulatory harmonization. The analytical monoculture of the efficient markets hypothesis and the shared narrative of risk management not only led to generalised market blindness to the unexpected, they also helped construct a dangerous homogeneity of behaviour and high correlations in markets that became truly terrifying. Now Hayek would not, I think, have expected this to happen. And this is because he assumed that market participants would rely on tried, tested and traditional ways of looking at markets and structuring their behaviour ways that have stood the test of time and survived the evolutionary selection in a competitive market of the fittest models and narratives. But in practice, particularly in innovative markets, we are all susceptible to new era stories that everything this time is different and that the traditional ways are obsolete. What is more, the dominant narratives and stories of the day, even if they are ultimately misleading, will tend at least initially to be reflected in market behaviour and therefore in market prices. And these price movements in turn serve to reconfirm the increasingly dominant narrative in what George, in what George Soros calls reflexive feedback loops, loops that can lead markets way out of line with fundamentals. The eventual bursting of the consequent market bubble, when the gap between narrative and reality is exposed and unbridgeable, may indeed see the extinction of the false narrative and misleading model as Hayek supposed, but not before serious damage to the fabric of markets and society has been done. Our verdict then must be that Hayek's evolutionary theory of the selection of the fittest rules, models and traditions has little merit in the short timescale of emotion fueled and innovative markets. 
Moreover, Hayek seriously underestimated the power of homogenous narratives, group think, and shared emotions to distort the message of price, market prices by cutting them off from the wisdom of decentralized perspectives. When emotions, perspectives, and theoretical frames become shared, the market loses much of its epistemological robustness. In one respect, though, Hayek's theories have been vindicated by the crisis. The worldwide adoption of the risk of risk sorry, of risk management techniques that sought to codify and quantify the risks facing each organization operating in the market, and even to reduce these risks to a single value-at-risk metric, not only led to the problem of an analytical monoculture. These techniques were also profoundly misleading because they ignored Hayek's teaching about the impossibility of codifying, let alone quantifying statistically and centralizing, all the contextual and tacit knowledge relevant to the assessment of credit and other risks. Tacit and local knowledge of business risk can no more be accessed statistically by a remote company risk officer, regulator or rating agency than it can be codified and accessed by a central planning bureau. Moreover, the attempt to reduce uncertainty about the future to measurable risk on the basis of systematic regularities found in past data ignored the extent to which a continuous process of financial market innovation and innovative reactions by others to this innovation subverts all systematic regularities and creates immeasurable uncertainty and genuine market indeterminacy. In such complex and innovative environments, it is especially important to recognize the limits to knowledge and to be correspondingly cautious. The rationalist hubris of the risk management industry and of banks relying on it to trade with very little capital to cover unforeseen contingencies or misunderstood factors is as dangerous as that of Soviet commissars staking all on five-year plans based on aggregate statistics. In another respect, however, Hayek's analysis was both deficient and inferior to recent analysis in standard economics. Hayek's assumption that key aspects of decentralized information would get reflected to all through market prices ignored two problems. The first is the degree of influence on market prices that is a function of market power or wealth. And if those with access to key decentralized information have very little bargaining power in markets and are outbid by those ignorant of the facts, it is not a foregone conclusion that the truth picture will be reflected in prices, or at least any time soon. Market success goes as often as not to the rich rather than to the wise. More importantly still, Hayek's analysis implicitly assumes that those privy to crucial contextual or local information will refrain from using that information advantage to exploit opportunistically others in the market and that they will merely by their actions communicate to others the vital information via prices. But in recent years, economists like George Akerlof have analysed successfully the damage that is frequently done to market robustness by such asymmetries of information, and by the presence or fear of opportunistic behaviour. In particular, asymmetries of information can lead to thin markets, where there is not the required trust for trades to take place or they can lead to false pricing, 
caused by the withholding of key information from some players. It is not hard to see the relevance of this to the crisis. Hayek and Short underestimated the prevalence of market failures induced by self-interested parties trading on information advantages. Unfortunately, exploitation and market failure are features of markets with decentralized and dispersed information quite as much as is benign coordination through the price mechanism. There's a more general sense, too, in which Hayek grossly underestimated the dangers of free market ideology. He assumed that free markets emerge naturally. In fact, of course, they are creatures of government, theory, and ideology. John Gray makes this point eloquently in his book on Hayek. Hayek may have understood better than anyone the dangers of enacting pure theory in practice and the value of traditions and local institutions as embodiments of accumulated wisdom and morals. And yet, his own economic liberalism was guilty of just such rationalist hubris. As John Gray puts it, to sweep away restrictions on free markets that have been in force for generations must be exceedingly risky, since we cannot know what vital social functions they may be performing. Hayek's paradoxical failure to see the dangers inherent in free market deregulation is relevant to the policy areas leading up to 2007. In country after country, enactment by governments of a theory-based plan, financial market deregulation, destabilized markets by undermining traditional local rules, norms, and methods. Furthermore, the impact of financial market homogenization globalization, to use another name, appears to have damaged the wisdom of prices by reducing the access of the global market as a whole to a plurality of heterogeneous perspectives and rules, while greatly reducing the localism of company decisions. So by way, by way of conclusion, I want to leave you with a conundrum and a set of questions that I hope we can discuss. As I argued in the first half of my talk, Hayek's great insight was that in modern complex economies, we cannot do without the wisdom bestowed by market prices. And in my experience of teaching students who grew up in the old Comic-Con system, there are few with any experience of sustained attempts to do without the knowledge emerging from market interaction who doubt that Hayek was here articulating one of the great truths of economics. Central planning bureaus have almost always failed when they have tried to base statistics, tried to base decisions on central statistics. Because these statistics are incapable of aggregating crucial, dispersed, contextual and tacit knowledge and the subjective valuations of innumerable citizens in a society. What is more, as we have seen, Hayek's epistemological arguments also cast doubt on the likely efficacy of Keynesian and monetarist interventions by governments. But for all the power of Hayek's arguments in favour of markets and against rationalist government intervention, we are left with a conundrum and a paradox. The conundrum is that the market price mechanism is often hijacked by analytical monocultures and dominant narratives that override pluralism of perspective and the decentralisation of judgement that should be the market's great gift. And the paradox is 
that attempts to create ever more free and deregulated markets have threatened many of the institutional, social and moral underpinnings of successful markets. This paradox may suggest that Hayek was lucky to live in a transitional period when the market was free enough in many countries to give us the wisdom of prices, but still local and embedded enough in national institutions to give us all the benefits of traditional and local wisdom of all the benefits of traditional and local wisdom and a moral code. So my concluding questions are these. First, can untrammeled markets protect themselves from the predatory use of market power and information advantage when cut off from traditional moral and regulatory codes? And second, can globalised markets nurture the local knowledge-bearing institutions or companies that are often the basis of each country's comparative advantage? And can they safeguard the very pluralism of perspective across countries that gives the world economy as, as a whole its robustness? In other words, can we have global markets without a dangerous homogeneity of regulation and a monoculture of analytical frameworks? And one final thought connected with these questions. All Hayek's writings on economics are concerned to show the limitations of conscious planning and collective decision-making, and the power of unplanned emergence and individual liberty. Hayek was very wary of centralised attempts to decide on value trade-offs and to aggregate knowledge, arguing that it was much better to allow individuals to express their preferences in a free market and to share the benefit of their local knowledge by their interaction with others via the price mechanism. But I would argue that Hayek was guilty of pursuing a false dichotomy between the dangers of collective planning and deliberation on the one hand and the merits of unplanned emergence and untrammeled market interaction of decentralised individuals on the other. In capitalist economies, knowledge and value weightings are, as Hayek argued, an output of markets and not merely an input. But this still leaves a significant role for collective democratic debate and rational deliberation. The most successful economies and democracies are those, I would argue, that combine rational deliberation and even some collective planning with a healthy respect for the emergence of new preferences and knowledge from the marketplace. Moreover, as events over the last few years have taught us, the diktat of untrammeled free markets can place us as surely on the road to serfdom as the diktat that Hayek most feared, that of the Central Planning Bureau of a socialist or fascist state. Thank you. Right, so we have um, about 40 to 45 minutes for discussion, so plenty of time to try and come to grips with some of the questions, maybe. Um, do you want to take your own questions, or do you want me to? As you like. Whatever is easier for you. Hi, Rami, member of public. First question: Does Hayek takes uh, preferences of individuals in the market as exogenous, or does he talk about the effect of the beliefs in the market on shaping those preferences? This is the first question. And the second one is: It's more of a comment about the Keynes and the Hayek uh, debate. Don't you think that? 
uh, Keynes' theory of market was more uh, accurate because he saw market as inherently destabilizing and true to animal spirits. The exact thing that you were saying that you, this homogenous belief shapes everything. <coughs> Two very interesting questions. I mean, I think um, he certainly partly saw preferences and beliefs as endogenous to the market, as well as, I mean, he. There are lots of complex strands to Hayek, and I'm not, not ultimately a, a, um, a full-time Hayekian scholar, but there are certainly two important facets to it. First, he did believe very strongly in the role of traditional institutions as embodiments of collective wisdom and even of shaping preferences. So that, in a sense, would be an exogenous uh, influence from, a, from an economic perspective. But he also very strongly believed that um, beliefs and preferences are an output of markets, that you cannot... No, and this is why central planning couldn't work. That people only work out what they need to do by interacting with others in the market on the basis of their own very of their own limited local knowledge and the the, the um, and the information they glean from market prices. And that, that this is a, there is an evolving knowledge that, that comes from operating in the market. So it's partly endogenous and partly exogenous. I think would, would be my answer to that. Now on the fascinating debate between high debates between Hayek and Keynes, and as you know, Lionel Robbins first wanted to get Hayek to the LSE in order to counter Keynesianism. I mean, that's part of why he, he came, to, came to the LSE, and they, they certainly had um, a lot of debates, shall we say. Um, I'm inclined to think they were both right and they were both wrong, ultimately. Um, they were both right about the same thing, essentially, which was taking uncertainty extremely seriously. Um, and essentially what Keynes focused on was why therefore markets fail and what Hayek focused on was why therefore governments fail and I think they both ultimately have a very strong point um, and essentially um, um, economics has tended to, 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 to focus on, on, um, on the failure of, of, of government very often on the Hayekian side of it until Keynes came along and then he said no look actually um, it, we, we cannot have rational expectations in the way you know, the world is just so uncertain, etc., etc. So I think they're, bo they're both needed, if you, if you like. I, mean, I think you know, Keynes expresses beautifully why we cannot, in fact, have rational expectations in conditions of uncertainty. The outstanding fact, as he put it, is the extreme precariousness of the basis of our knowledge. That's, that's Keynes um, all, all about the prospect of, of yields. So I think Keynes is right about that, but Hayek is also right that that doesn't mean, therefore, sorry, Hayek is also right that you just therefore move to, to government intervention, because how do governments know what's going to happen um, if the world is so uncertain? In fact, they may be even less likely to know because they don't have access to the kind of contextual information which market participants have. That would have been Hayek's response. Yeah. You didn't say it in so many words, but it did seem that um, you have a feeling that the, the actual market itself um, was rigged. And I put it to you that um, the, the advent of kind of social media is actually changing the dynamics. And the world is probably a prime example of that. It wasn't the market that closed it. So what, what was a prime example of that? News of the world. News of the world. News of the world. Um, that it wasn't the market that the business went bust, and it wasn't governments that can regulate it. It was actually collective people um, choosing to voice their um, opinions. 
better. Um, I'm not sure I want to get into the news of the world, but um, <laughs> um, I think the the issue of the of the internet and narratives is a very interesting one. And my suspicion, I mean, it's always very dangerous to kind of put anachronistic thoughts into dead thinkers' minds. But my suspicion is that Hayek would have been fascinated by the internet as a medium because he'd have seen it as a very much a, a self-organizing, complex, adaptive system of completely decentralized, no overall design, um, where people have a you know, relatively small amount of knowledge individually, but they interact with each other. So I, th I think in some ways he'd have seen this as an archetypal version of his idea of, 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 of societies and economies acting as, as catalaxes, as spontaneous orders, as, 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 as he saw it. Um, what I think, as I try to say in the, in the talk, that I think Hayek missed was how often um, we in fact get in free markets and even, I would say, on the internet, um, overwhelming fashions of, for one narrative. And I think this, this doesn't just happen in highly organized societies where, you know, in, in France, for example, where, you know, all, all, every, everyone who matters, including the new president, is an anarch or whatever, and therefore they have one world view or something. It isn't just in societies like that. You can also get extraordinary homogeneity of belief, even in very free, spontaneous uh, in, uh, things, as, as perhaps even on the internet community for a while. And I think what we saw in the run-up to the financial crisis was, was, was an extraordinary monoculture in terms of viewing how markets should work and operate. Not, of course, by everyone. There are lots of theologians and guardian readers who didn't didn't buy the monoculture, but, but most people operating in the markets, the regulators, the central banks, the treasury, they all bought the efficient markets hypothesis, they all bought the central tenets of risk management, an extraordinary idea really that there's no genuine uncertainty, that the future is always a shadow, statistical shadow of the past, even in innovative markets. These were, to an extraordinary degree, sort of monoculture ways of looking at it. Now, it isn't that that narrative was particularly wrong. Any narrative is only a partial way of looking at the world. It has good things and bad things about it. What's wrong is if everyone is looking at the world the same way. And that was one of the things Hayek disliked about socialism, was the idea that, you know, you, the idea that there was one right way of looking and accessing the world. And it seems to me what we've ironically got is the free market producing precisely up to the, the, the same situation, where there was a remarkable homogeneity of ways of looking at the world. Now, how did this happen in what's a supposedly a spontaneous order? Well, I think one of the things that he perhaps missed was something that I think George Soros, among others, is very, very clear on, is the extent to which you get reinforcing, self-reinforcing dynamics in narratives. I mean, part of the thing, I think, is also an emotional thing, that when we're faced with uncertainty, we like to cling to narratives. We like to have some way of structuring how we operate. And we like to share these narratives with others. I mean, it was, you know, the Keynes, Keynes, again, in that famous chapter 11 of the general theory, saying that, you know, the thing, thing about the best thing for a fund manager is to fail conventionally. Um, and and there, there is an element of that. You know, if, 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 uh, if we don't know what's going to happen, then we tend to at least want to look at it the same way as everyone else so we're not too far out on the limb. Okay, so I think there are psychological reasons for this. But there are also... Um, uh, self-reinforcing dynamics in markets, and this is what the George Soros reflexive loop, uh, feedback loops is about, that if enough market participants view, view a situation in a certain way, then prices start to move in that way. 
And those prices then tend to affect reality in certain ways. That's the first point. They aren't just neutral. I mean, if, if for example, they lower the cost of finance, then they lower the cost of investment, or they raise the cost of finance, they raise the cost of it. They have real effects. But they also reconfirm the narrative, because prices are moving in the direction the narrative says. And so this can become a self-fulfilling thing until such a point as the narrative, and any narrative is always partial and partly misleading, if you like, bumps up against some element of reality that it doesn't cover, and then the whole thing collapses. And, and you, you. So I think there is a sort of dynamic here in, in markets to do with the role of narrative, which Hayek really didn't, didn't, uh, didn't look at. Does that answer your question? A bit. Apart from actually, the like, world. <laughs> what, um, I'm really interested in the dynamics of the internet, actually, as being a, um, more a free market yeah. as such, actually. And, and it's an area that I, it, you know, it's only just evolving. I'm involved in a crowdfunding right. platform at the moment, developing that. And, you know, it's very, very interesting all the dynamics mm. uh, that uh, weren't about. Mm. No, I, I, I see that. Any other? Yeah, how can we, as a slight, uh, protect ourselves maybe from such a big narrative taking over? Yeah, this is a big, big question. But um, I mean, it's very, very difficult to talk about literally narratives. Um, I mean, uh, but I think there are elements which are more institutional, which we could do. Um, one of the things I think is very dangerous about the way that economic policy has evolved in the last 15, 20 years is whenever there's a problem, I mean, Gordon Brown articulated, used to articulate this most, most clearly, he would say, we need global solutions to global problems. That was a, you know, a repeated phrase you, you heard from, from the from the last British Prime Minister. And you also hear, you know, in the European Union and many, many other institutions benchmarking to best practice. Well, the whole idea of global solutions and best practice assumes that you know what best practice is going to be in the unknowable future. But well, we have no idea, really, what the problems are in five years' time. So to, to always be looking for what, in the backward-looking sense, was the best practice or the best model um, is, I think, dangerous for one thing. And I think, you know, this sort of um, approach, and it's not just the European Union thing, instead, the Basel, the Baal capital adequacy regime, for example, that tries to harmonize capital adequacy uh, uh, rules across different markets, for example, is guilty of exactly the same thing. Um, it's far from clear to me that it wasn't much more stable when we had economies operating with different regulatory regimes. I mean, take, for example, Spain. We can all see the problems that Spain is, has at the moment. Thank heavens that Spain at least didn't harmonize its capital adequacy rules fully with the rest of the European Union and had a, a strong element of, of pro-cyclicality in their capital requirements. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good thing if different countries do things in a different way because we cannot know which one is going to be necessarily better or worse in the long run. Um, so I, I think that, that's sort of one answer I would make me to your question, not go for always the, the, the one right answer, because we cannot know what the one right answer is. We need a, a plurality of different approaches 
um, in order that, um, that we have as a, as a world a economy as a whole, if you like, the resources available to look at things in different ways. It's also a matter of straight of correlations. I mean, it's just not healthy for all economies to go down at the same time if their model happens to be wrong or the regulatory approach happens to be wrong. Now, clearly there are trade-offs here. If every country operates in entirely different regulatory systems, then there are all sorts of externalities of that and, and, and it becomes difficult to trade and so on. So there's a balance to be struck here. But I think we've moved too far in the direction of having um, single, you know, uh, single regulatory approaches and single capital adequacy approaches and so on across countries. So that would be one example I would give. Um, can I then shift from what you've just been saying that Hyatt would have seen the European Um, I actually have no idea what he thought about the, the, the European Union. I should have looked this up, actually, because after all, he only died in 1992, which was after the Maastricht Treaty. Um, so I, I'm very wary to put any words into his mouth, to be honest. Um, I, think, I, I think it doesn't take much imagination to, to see that he would have thought that the project of the Euro was a classic rationalist constructivist project that Unfortunately, it didn't, um, didn't, didn't work out as intended. Um, um, yeah, I don't agree what I mean, but but I but I think also um, I don't think he would have seen all the problems as to do with the European Union either, probably because. In practice, I think there are an awful lot of other things going on in the way that markets are op operating that have nothing to do with the European Union. So perhaps that's a very weak answer to your question. But insofar as the European Union, what's one standard of regulation um, of financial services of various all sorts of economic factors? Is there right. only one way of doing this? We want to destroy um, national heterogeneity. Well, I don't necessarily fully recognise that description of the European Union. I mean, I think there are there are balance, there are um, <coughs> the conflicting trends in the European Union, should we say. There is a tendency to harmonisation, and I think what I'm talking about here is precisely a challenge to doing that too much. Um, but the reason that there is some pressure for harmonisation is the other problem, which is if you have every country with totally different regulations, it's very hard to trade with each other. That, that's, so there's a balance to be struck here. And what the European Union did in the single market was actually very interesting because they tried initially to do harmonization and they eventually moved away from that to mutual recognition of different, to mutual recognition of different um, regulations. And I think you know, the European Union is often introduced as very simplistic in you know, it's either fully harm It isn't as nearly as simplistic as, as, as just a harmonizing uh, uh, institution, I think. In many areas, it goes for mutual recognition of difference. And I think the great strength of the European Union is precisely that there are such radically different economies operating in radically different ways. So um, the, the idea of comparative institutional advantage, if you like. It's great that France has completely different things it's very good at from Germany. Uh, and that's a good thing about the European Union. And if the European Union allows them to work harmoniously together with their differences, that's when the European Union is performing its great role, I think, and that's perhaps what Hayek would say was the, the reason for the European Union. But I mean, I agree with you that there, is, there are huge dangers of benchmarking to best practice, the whole Lisbon agenda, um, and, and of full harmonisation. And um, 
Yeah, the, the euro, I think one has to say um, it was a great rationalist constructivist idea and um, it, it did perhaps run roughshod over the need to have um, more local institutions um, uh, which, knowing what's, you know, it's a very, very complicated area, the, the euro, but I'm pretty sure Hayek would have said that. <laughs> yes, on the question of rational planning for production, I once saw a bit of a film of some Soviet planners trying to work out the number of screwdrivers the Soviet Union would produce in the next few years. And there were three people sitting around a table. It occurred to me, how could they possibly decide in such a huge country with so many different possibilities? Presumably, issue an order for factories to produce that number. But then, on the other side, if you have a large private firm which actually produces screwdrivers, they might also have somewhere, at some point, a little meeting to decide how many to produce. So doesn't one, some sort of rational planning have to go on yeah. in whatever system you have at some level? <clears throat> well, I, I think the, the, the kind of example you use is, is, a, is a very, very good one, because I think it's actually the area, it, it, it's the kind of example where, where Hayek's theory is is most brilliantly true, if you like. It's these very simple markets and simple products which, where the planned economy failed, failed completely spectacularly. I mean, it, it was the failure to have the right light bulbs, you know, even loo paper, as I, as I mentioned, um, screwdrivers, these things, and enough um, of the right kind of food, except for bread. They usually got bread right. Um, in, in the shops, that was the thing that really ruined the, their prospects in, in their own population's minds. I mean, this was their huge failure. And, and I think Hayek's great insight was it's just impossible to work out statistically, almost, almost impossible to work out statistically what these requirements are without the help of the price mechanism showing you re the relative um, strength of supply and demand. Um, now, you're absolutely right that companies do some planning. Like right at the end I, of the talk, I was saying, you know, I think Hayek is guilty of making too strong a dichotomy here between planning and emergence. Of course, those operating in markets do plan. Um, of course, um, I th and I think it's actually useful for governments to do some planning as well, but it doesn't nullify his central point that I think those planners can't operate without the information from prices. So yes, the, the, these big companies will be planning, but they'll be planning with one of their key inputs as what prices are telling them. Um, now, where you get a monopoly, or where you get very large companies, then it becomes a little bit more like the central planning uh, system again, potentially. Um, and that, uh, that, that, is, that is an issue which, again, I think Hayek always ducked. He didn't really want to allow for, um, for monopolies and mergers, commissions, and other interferences in the market. But as we all know, markets do tend to monopoly if we're not careful. And then it becomes much harder, of course, for the price, price mechanism to work. And to come back to your question about the, uh, about the, um, uh, about the, the European Union, I mean, I think this would be another way in which I might, 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 might defend it. If, if the European Union is partly there in order to ensure that the market is not wholly American for a start, then that does produce a certain heterogeneity. And if the European Union's monopolies and mergers thing, for example, preventing very large companies from taking huge slices of the pan-European market and so on, I think does work actually to defend the wisdom of prices, I would argue. So just to stick up for another bit for the European Union. <laughs>
do, do those people who are using the markets just to gamble need special control? I mean, are there two things happening here? One, you've got the market for real goods, and then you've got the market for real goods that's being affected by the those who think it's a casino. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is a, a very, very good and very difficult question. I mean, it's, it's of course the thing that Keynes was getting at with the beauty contest analogy. I don't know if everyone knows that, but Hayek's, sorry, Keynes is great. Um, uh, description of, of stock markets was that they were like a beauty contest of the kind that used to have apparently in 1930s newspapers where the, the, the prize was given to the person who guessed not who was the most beautiful woman in the list of pictures but who other people would think, who the majority of people would think was the most beautiful woman. So what you had to do was to guess who the majority would think was the most beautiful. And you said that's essentially what market speculators are doing. They're always guessing what other people are going to think is the most important, is the best stock market, the best stock or, or, or whatever. So there's a kind of um, reflexivity going on, if you like, between the market participants, which has very little to do, you'd be saying, with the underlying fundamentals. It's got to do with... And I think that is a danger. This could be part of the, the dynamic of, of self-reinforcing dynamic of narratives. On the other hand, speculation, if it doesn't get out of control, provides market liquidity. So again, these things are always a balance, with, I think, pros and cons, and markets don't work very well without any liquidity. And s speculation, as long as it doesn't get out of hand, provides some liquidity. I mean, that was always the defense that people who were in the city when I was used to say. So. Uh, you, your lecture seems to suggest that Hayek ignored the urgent need for Western culture reduce its carbon footprint with the consequences on global warming. And uh, can you tell me, is that true? He does not seem to have been one of those people who denied global warming. So why did he ignore the need to reduce carbon footprints? Uh, I think I'm actually going to have to pass on that. I honestly have no idea what I thought about global warming, so I would just be um, thank you very much. Uh, third is coming. You mentioned Hacklock, and I think the market for lemons is, is quite interesting. So if we take the original market for lemons, we have the second class. And, and the free market did come up with solutions to that, so there are guarantees. And so the free market in some ways found a solution. In the financial crisis, I'd argue that something like the market for securitisation is a good example of where, where lemons was a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the market will come up with a solution to that, but it's taken quite a long time. What do you think Hayek would say is, is the solution? Should there be a solution that can be um, pushed upon the market, or do we just have to wait? Well, as I said in, in, in the talk, I don't think Hayek really thought of the dispersed information problem as uh, a cause of, opportun of opportunistic exploitation. I, I think he sort of missed that. That's, that's my reading of it. Um, and so he didn't see it. He, he saw the market as overcoming it by the fact that people, by act, acting in the market, would, would, would transmit their, their, their knowledge via their influence on demand and, and, and supply via prices. But he didn't see that people could just try and exploit other people in the market and, and manipulate the market with their, with their knowledge. I don't think he actually sort of saw that. 
if you see what I mean. So I, I don't think I can answer that's what, what you, you would have come up with as, as, as a solution. I think when it comes to the, to the financial crisis, it, it's a very interesting one. I mean, economists generally would love to blame the whole crisis on asymmetric information, because then it doesn't really cause a problem for economics. You know, it just means more market transparency is required, um, and that's fine. Um, I think it's, and I, I don't doubt for one moment that there was an asymmetric information problem, that there were cases where certain players in the market knew a great deal more than the people they were trading with, exploited them, and that that was a problem. However, I personally think the much bigger problem was symmetrical ignorance. That actually the much bigger problem was that even the people inventing this stuff who did have a slightly better idea of what was going on actually had no idea what the macro level effects of everyone adopting these would be and the innovative uses by other people of their products, etc. So I think the problem of symmetrical ignorance, um, of real uncertainty, if you like, was much greater in this, in, in this crisis, personally, than, than asymmetric information. And that presents a much bigger problem for economics um, because it doesn't mean you just need to have more transparency of data. Um, uh, and, and, and better corporate governance regimes, etc. It actually suggests there's a systemic problem here. Um, part of it is just to do with the sheer complexity of these products. I mean, Andrew Haldane at the Bank of England has a lovely statistic in one of his papers that um, I, I might be getting this slightly wrong, but basically that the average CDO pro product, collateralized debt obligation, to understand all its constituent parts fully, you would have to read a billion pages of prospectus information. I think that's his figure. Now, the, the point is, you know, in that cir circumstance, almost no one, you know, the people who put the stuff out or the people who buy it really know what's fully in it. And that problem of symmetrical ignorance, I think, is, is partly, therefore, just an epistemological problem of how do you deal with that amount of data. It's also a problem of what I call ontological uncertainty, which is, a, I think, a completely different and radically impossible to deal with kind of uncertainty. I mean, epistemological uncertainty, you could sort of see ways you might be able to improve it a bit. But the ontological uncertainty is just caused by innovation. If you bring out something entirely new, or you react to a product in an entirely new way, it means it changes the dynamics, it changes the way markets operate, meaning that the past is not a good predictor of the future, and then you're genuinely having to feel your way to an unknown future. And I think the risk management industry just completely ignored that kind of genuine nineteen uncertainty, if you like, assumed it away, um, and it became a, a very, re very useful um, uh, illusion of control, a nice, comfortable narrative that actually had all these risks controlled. We even knew with our value at risk metric what the possible losses were in any one day, and then you know you got. Um, rather honest uh, bankers getting on the radio in 2007 and saying what's happening every day is 25 standard deviation events. Well, you know, they didn't, of course, once you start saying that, the point is that the model is totally wrong. <laughs> um, actually, so there's someone here. No, I was just wondering how Hayek, uh, what, what, how he would have spoken about the, um, the globalization a phenomenon. That's to say, a country, say, such as Great Britain, is, is well nigh um, in, in a possible position in terms of manufacturing. Because anything that can be made here, uh, albeit if it's, unless it's very high tech specific goods, of like German machinery, whatever. Anyway, 
everything that can be purchased here can be made, uh, everything will be purchased, can be made much cheaper in, in Asia. So uh, I suppose in the, using the efficient market uh, paradigm, uh, have, would I have to simply say, well, you can't manufacture, so you're going to have to switch. But what you are good at is financial services. So the people who used to make shoes in Northampton, they're going to have to become accountants. And, and, and people, the people, uh, people coming to London are in need of legal services and you know, accountants and, and all of that. That's a, so but I'm not sure, but that, that this creates what we see currently as these massive, massive uh, imbalances, you know, long-term uh, deficit, uh, deficits, increasing deficits, both uh, in Europe and in, in particularly America, where we have a, a you know a 15 trillion dollar debt, and it's getting worse. So how will you have addressed that? Um, I mean, again, if you don't mind, I'm going to duck the counterfactual answer to what Hayek would have answered because I <laughs> I just don't know what Hayek would have answered um, to, to to the globalization debate. Um, but I think he did not fully appreciate the danger that um, free global markets would tear up local institutions. I mean, Hayek was a, this funny mixture. He was rather like Edmund Burke in this respect, actually. He was an extremely conservative socially, and in, the, in his belief in the role of institutions as embodiments of of, 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 of knowledge, of, 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 um, of accumulated knowledge and of moral um, rules and, and so on and so forth. And what's more, that they had been tried and tested at evolution, in an evolutionary area. He was quite a, a Darwinian in this sense, that, that the point about a, a traditional institution was it had, it had gone through you know, X number of tests, if you like, to, to show that it was the best institution for that particular country in dealing with, with, its, with, its, with its problems and so on. And yet, when it came to economics, he was entirely happy to rip up everything traditional because he was this ultra-free market. I mean, Burke was exactly the same. Burke was this organicist, um, extreme conservative when it came to institutions, but very happy to be free, completely free market. So the market is outside this. And I think this disjunction doesn't quite work, um, which is, I think, part of what you're, you're trying to get at, that if you have a, an untrammeled global free market, then it does... Um, does subvert your local institutions for good or ill, and I think you know Hayek does analyse some of the reasons that's likely to be for ill. You're going to lose a lot of local knowledge, a lot of lot of suitable local rules and morals, and, and so on. Um, and I think the same is true for companies. Um, um, ever bigger and bigger global multinational companies. It depends, of course, how they're run. If they're run as very clever, loose federations of local businesses, they may avoid this problem. But if they run very centrally, then you're going to get back to the central planned economy point problem again, where they're no longer responsive to local markets, no longer have that knowledge, of tacit knowledge, if you like, of local context and experience. And I think, again, I think Hayek never really wanted to or did face up to that, that, that problem that very, very large companies may start to look like planned economies if they're not careful. Um, now, of course, he would just say, well, they will disappear if they do that badly. And that, of course, is true up to a point, but they could take an awful lot with them in terms of a national economy uh, when that happens. Uh, right at the back. So an interesting exercise to apply this high theory of crisis in 
discovery mechanism to, to financial crisis. Mm -hmm. But with exercise, should one not look at like the economist uh, himself? We did the left Austrian theory of the mm -hmm. uh, credit cycles, mm -hmm. and yeah, that has a lot to say about what's mm -hmm. happening now. Mm -hmm. And Hayek himself wrote an important book in this, the crisis of production. Was, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just missing Hayek sort of as, a, as a sort of more pure economist in this exercise. Um, no, I, I think that's probably an absolutely fair criticism. I've taken one aspect of his thought, which interests me, which is his philosophy of economics, if you like, and, and applied that. Um, and um, I, I think, I mean, I did touch a little bit on his views on monetarism. I mean, he was very, very, he was almost as opposed to monetarism as he was to Keynesianism. Um, and, and I think did think that almost any intervention in the monetarist side would help to cause uh, disequilibrium and, and, and uh, unfortunate cycles, if you like. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I accept that um, you know, if Hayek were standing here, he'd have a lot more to say than just the wisdom of prices about, um, about, the, about this crisis. This is a question of, on the globalization point and your the second bullet point and the first question. What do we mean by local and global? You said local institution, and then you, you said that kind of we don't want global solution to things, it needs to be a country. But then countries obviously are very different sizes, and also if it's bad to have a global standardized solution for the whole of the world, is it bad to have it for the whole of the US if you've got a big country? Is it bad for the whole of the UK? And should you have lots of you know, should every different county have a different financial regulation yeah. and so on and so forth? Where, where do you draw the line? Where's the balance? I mean, I think this, this comes back to, to, to this, the European Union, the fascinating European Union question earlier. I think it's all a matter of deciding. It's a, it's a matter of trade-offs. I mean, there, there are advantages of localism and of, of, of leaving things to the level where uh, people really know what's going on. But there are also disadvantages of that. Um, in terms of, uh, if you're talking about regulation, the problems of actually trading across gro grossly different regulatory systems, or the problems of one country free riding on another, um, and the externalities of some regulations for other countries. I mean, there are, this is a very, very complex area, and I don't re remote for a, a minute want to say that um, we should have no global uh, agreements about trade or regulations. I don't think that for a second. What I would say, though, for example, is that, or poses a question, is could it be the case that the 60s and 50s and 60s and in a little bit um, the early, the mid 80s as well, were more stable, just a question out there, because they operated in the slightly looser GATT arrangement of essentially mutual recognition of different regulations, but where there was a lot of work done to make sure that they weren't grossly damaging to another country's interests and if they were to, 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 uh, to deal with that issue. But not moving to, to very intrusive sort of harmonization of, 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 of regulations. And I, I think that we may just have got the balance wrong. I, it's clearly a balance here. Um, and, and you know, when you're talking about individual countries, that one of the key balances for any country is to decide how much to devolve and how much to centralize. Different countries do it differently. Very few countries fully centralize with complete success. Very few countries completely decentralise with success. There's a there's a there's a there's a balance there's a balance to, to be struck there. And I think the same is true with this with the, with the European Union 
the, 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 the phrase that used to do the rounds a lot of subsidiarity is, is, is an issue here. There are clearly some things which are better done at the level of the European Union, for example, and the, and the global warming things are probably a, a, a very good e example of that. Um, there are other things which are, you know, frankly absurd to do at the level of the European Union and probably absurd to do at the level of the nation state either. Um, and so, uh, but th this would be obvious to a German, and maybe Hayek is a kind of, at least an Austrian German would have, would have, would have thought that, because, um, you know, subsidiarity, a lot of things being done at lender level, some at country level, some at European Union level, some at World Trade Organization level, that's just obvious to Germans. They don't get why we have a problem with it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I was wondering whether we um, get a bit too mesmerized by the financial markets, because it's clear that free markets are dangerous in financial markets, and there is a long history of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's had a particularly bad convulsion. Um, but actually, if one can turn them aside from that, yeah. the screwdrivers have kept coming, yeah. and the toilet rolls and the electric yeah. rolls, and the, the whole internet and, and the MFA, and all the things that the free markets are meant to deliver have gone on being delivered outside yeah, no, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a very, very good point. I think that is um, partly, I think, it, it partly comes to the question at the back about Hayek's other theories about uh, credit cycles and so on. I mean, there are things going on in financial markets, um, Minsky and others as well, um, about sort of cycles which don't happen in, 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 in markets for, for products. So I think that's one side of it. I think it's also the case that financial markets have at least recently tended to innovate far more rapidly um, and far more comprehensively than other markets. I mean, it's not true of all markets, because IT markets are also pretty innovative. Um, but where you get very, very high levels of innovation, then you get very high levels of uncertainty. And when you get very high levels of uncertainty, particularly if you have very high rewards attached as well, then people try to clutch on to narratives as opposed to, um, to, to facts, if you want to put it that way. And I think wherever you get that use of narratives, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We have to use narratives to, to navigate our way through, through, through the uncertain future. But then there's this danger of this reflexive um, feedback loops where narratives take off and become dominating and, and have a feedback effect through prices and uh, affect reality. I mean, you know, if everyone believes Spain is going to go bust, then it will go bust. If everyone believes Spain won't go bust, it won't go bust. I mean, what people believe and the narrative they tell has enormous effects in financial markets. That's not so true in screwdrivers. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if you believe that a, a screwdriver with 15 different points will work as well as a, it probably doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It, so, but the beliefs and narratives we use don't affect reality as much in product markets, and therefore perhaps the role of this role, of this, this impact of narratives is much less extreme. Does that answer you? I think we have time for one last question. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> over there. Uh, the possibility of uh, misleading prices or externalities. Yeah. So for example, when the costs are in the future, for example, with climate change, um, then it's impossible because the cost is in the future, it's uncertain to include this in the current prices. So what, what would I do? Would he have any ground for action? Uh, on what basis would he uh, get the information right now? Hmm. <laughs> um, as I say, I, I, I don't know what, 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 what Hayek would have, would have said about, um, about uh, climate change, but I think it does, it does present a real problem, which I sort of came up with in my last, last point here about 
you know, was he making too, too strict a dichotomy here? I mean, there are certain areas where we, I think, do need collective planning, and those, some of those areas are where there are very pervasive externalities, or where there are very pervasive issues of distribution between different generations, because the generation that's going to live next can't vote in the marketplace. I mean, that, that, that is a, that is just a fact. Um, and, um, but I think Hayek would have been very wary of predictions, because I suspect he would have said, we just don't know what innovations are going to come up. You know, we're go we've got to use... So I suspect he would have been fairly sceptical, but I honestly don't know how, where he'd have fallen on that, 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 uh, um, that, that, um, that divide. Okay, well, that was fantastic. Thank you very much.